0: Hey, I'm Danny Mazer and you are listening to the Soul Stories podcast, an extension of Soul Stories. At Soul Stories, we create spaces for risk-taking, vulnerability, and critical thought. On this season of the podcast, we speak to changemakers about their personal journeys and how they are making an impact in their communities. Chelsea is an artist, activist, and educator. She has a special ability to approach life with a sense of wonder and awe and hopes to inspire that feeling in others through creating meaningful experiences. She was homeschooled, lived homeless for a short period of her teenage years, and has traveled the world. This conversation is very special to me. She has been one of my closest friends and inspirations in life. It's a fun one. I hope you enjoy Hi, Chelsea.
1: Hi, Danny. How's it going?
0: It's good to see you.
1: You too. I see you around a lot these days.
0: You know, that's not true.
1: You wouldn't... Actually, (laughs) you would think we would see each other more.
0: We see each other twice a week.
1: Yeah, as far as like the fact that we live under the same roof, that's not a lot.
0: Right. We probably see each other more than twice a week, but we sit down maybe twice a week. Yeah. Two or three times. For
1: more than 10 minutes,
0: twice a week. Yeah. Well, welcome to the podcast. Oh yes,
1: yeah. Soul Stories podcast. <laughs> whoop whoop.
0: Chelsea has recently received the title Creative Director of Soul Stories. Oh yes,
1: thank you, thank you.
0: So she's, I humbly accept. She's uh she's up there. She's at the top of the mountain.
1: That's right. I'm a boss lady, so watch out. Boss watch lady. Watch out, world.
0: All right, world. <laughs> Get ready for this podcast. <laughs> so my first question to you mm-hmm. is, what are you creating in the world?
1: I, my work is centered around the idea of combining art and education to create meaningful experiences for people. So I do that in a lot of different ways. My main gig is working at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science in the museum programs department. So I help to create shows and I perform shows. I teach classes. Uh, we do events for people of all ages and it's super dynamic and fun and always changing. And so that's kind of, uh, you could call that applied theater or you could call it experiential learning, depending on what's like lens you want to look at it through. I'm also on like four different improv teams on Sunday. I have my first playback theater West show
0: Ooh.
1: and I work on soul stories a lot. Mm. Yeah. So those are my main things I'm creating in the world. I'm working on, um, this like performance project that I have a dream to do based on a book right now. Okay.
0: It's
1: called, uh, the book is called women who run with the wolves. It's by Clarissa Pincola Estes and it's a, basically a collection of folk stories. And I want to bring them to life on stage using puppets and performance art. So I've always got a lot of stuff going on. I'm about to leave for Honduras next week. Wow. Yeah.
0: So tell that's why
1: we don't see each other. Because <laughs> you and I are both so busy.
0: I'm glad we're this conversation oh, can, so I can figure that out.
1: Can I tell uh, the world about what happened last night when we were, wa- or two nights ago, when we were watching the movie.
0: <laughs> Maybe we're
1: like in the middle of this really intense, beautiful movie, <laughs> and Danny reaches over and pauses the movie and is like, "I have a Soul Stories idea." Because <laughs> <laughs> you're like always thinking about Soul Stories. You love it so much.
0: Mm, well, we're here to talk about you, right?
1: Now. Uh-huh, okay, <laughs>
0: we're, gonna, we're gonna deflect right back at you. All right. Uh, so, tell us about women who uh, run with wolves. That sounds like a super interesting project.
1: Yeah. Well, so right now I'm just kind of in the beginning of it. So I'm just uh, like...
0: What's the book about?
1: The book is a series of folktales that are, a lot of them come from like Latin American culture and a lot of them also come from Eastern Europe because the author is, her family is from those two areas of the world. And so she has collected all of these stories. And then also she has like a PhD in like psychology. I'm not exactly sure what like psychoanalysis. She does a lot of uh, dream work as well. So she tells the story and then she analyzes it and deciphers it and talks a lot about the cultural symbolism in the story. And so, what I hope to do is to recreate these stories in a very symbolic way.
0: What's an example of a story? Yeah, so... You've told me one. Tell me... uh, You told me one about a woman or a man going through the woods that gets nurtured by a woman in a log cabin or something.
1: I know which one you're talking about, yeah. Do you want to hear that one again or do you want to hear one about a skeleton?
0: A skeleton, yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay. So there's this story. See if I can remember it. It's this man, he's a fisherman and he goes out on this boat. He's fishing and he's fishing and he can't find any fish. His whole tribe is waiting for him back home and he has this pressure on himself that he has to get some fish. So he ventures out into the part of the water that nobody dares go to. They don't go there because they say that that place is haunted, now, nobody remembers what happened, but this woman a long time ago was punished by her father. She was killed and she was thrown overboard into the water. And she sunk all the way down to the bottom until the fishes ate apart all of her body.
0: Jesus Christ.
1: Yeah. And so she was left there. And so the fisherman is venturing out into this, like, forbidden area. And he's fishing and he feels a tug on his rod. And he's like, oh boy, I caught a big one. And so he starts pulling it up and he's super excited, this big, heavy thing. And it's like fighting with him. So he's like, oh man, this is going to like feed my whole family for so long. And he's so excited. And he pulls it all the way up and pops right out of the water, the skull of the woman. She's staring right at him and he becomes terrified and he starts he throws the stick and it gets caught on his shoe so now the fishing line is caught on a shoe and he rows back to land as quickly as possible and he runs and he runs and he runs and he runs, and he runs. Because the string is caught on his shoe, it looks to him as though the skeleton is chasing him through the forest. So the skeleton's like head is like bobbing back and forth and like its bones are all rattling like a rattlesnake, and he's running and he's running and he runs through the tundra and he finally tries to take cover in a cave. So he dives into this cave and she dives in right behind him. But she's left in the shadows. So he doesn't see that she made it in.
0: She isn't the skeleton. She is a
1: skeleton woman, yes. And so he falls asleep finally thinking that he's safe. And as he's sleeping a little tear emerges from his eye. And the skeleton woman who's now sitting in the shadow in the corner sees that tear coming out of his eye and she becomes overwhelmingly thirsty. And she has this like huge desire that she can pick herself up by the bones and she's like walking on the knuckles of her wrists like clatters her way over there and she drinks the water from his tear but to her that drop of water seems to be endlessly like full of water it's like a magical tear so she gets all of this moisture into her body And then she reaches in and touches his heart. And from the pulsation of the rhythm of the drumming of his heart, she can recreate that within herself. And she builds herself a heart inside of her chest. And that heart starts to bleed out blood throughout her whole body. And it gives her this life and this energy. And she becomes a fully fleshed woman eventually. And she crawls inside in the blankets with him and she prays and she prays and she prays for like breasts that will be so long and big that she can wrap them around her body for warmth. And she prays for hair that will be so long that her hair can be used as a tool for him when he's fishing. She prays for like strong wide hips so that she can carry him when he needs help. And then eventually she falls asleep beside him. And then when they wake up, He's got this beautiful woman in his arms. So in that story is really old symbolism that has been a part of our cultural narrative for like a very, very long time. For example, the symbol of the skeleton woman herself is the symbol of women's dark side and the part of us that's scary. But it's also the rawest, wildest, most authentic part of what it means to be a woman. And men are often shocked and afraid by that part of womanhood. And the author goes in to talk about how in the beginning parts of a relationship, the honeymoon phase, everything seems really great. And that is the phase of when he's pulling on what's underneath the water and he doesn't know what he's going to see. And he's so excited. And that's like the beginning of a relationship. And then when the skeleton woman shows her face, it's like facing the true wild nature of a woman. She says in the story that subconsciously the man has attached that string to his foot to keep her close, even though he's so afraid that he's also running away from her at the
0: same time. Mm.
1: There's a lot more symbolism in there, but I don't, you know.
0: Yeah, I want to hear it.
1: Okay. So then the teardrop is a symbol because when we sleep, our deepest vulnerability comes out. And also with that vulnerability can come compassion. And so, a lot of people will, like, you know, cry a single tear when you're sleeping. And, like, water can, like, leak out of your eyes.
0: Is that actually true?
1: Yeah. Like, haven't you ever woken up and you had, like, some, like, salty crustiness from, like, a tear?
0: I guess I never thought about it as from a tear, but I've had crustiness.
1: Yeah. I mean, like... Anyway, for the metaphor. All right,
0: yeah. All right. Let's keep it going. <laughs> I
1: don't know the scientific data as far as like how many people you know cry in their sleep, but the One idea is that tier. like like that was the moment where he softened and where he was willing to be vulnerable and also willing to be compassionate towards her. And so she goes to that tear and just from that like little bit of like love and compassion for her wild nature, she can get like so much nutrients.
0: What about when she's praying for those things? Those are kind of crazy things. They were yeah. Those were a little shocking to me. I wasn't expecting that.
1: Right. Like she wasn't praying for like perky tits, you know, that you could look at it uh, in a sexy magazine or something like that. She was praying for life and for nourishment, for big breasts that will keep her warm and for hips that have utility and for long mm. hair that can be used as a tool.
0: Cause in, you know, the, in the way you framed it, I heard hips and breasts and hair for, for his benefit. And I was curious about that too.
1: I think that it's for them to live their lives together mm. and like bring their lives together.
0: Okay. Yeah. So more in the sense of like creating like a strong union. Yeah. Okay.
1: I think her tits specifically were just to keep her warm. As I can recall in the story,
0: yeah, the image of long tits wrapping around,
1: yeah, like a scarf. (laughs) 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 See what a fun thing I could do with like puppets. I'm not going to do that actually, but like,
0: yeah, you could. There's so much
1: beautiful symbolism in this book.
0: Yeah, you could. uh, I don't know if this should go on air, but we could talk about motorboating.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know how much I love it. (laughs) You know. That will be the new title. <laughs> We're not going to call it Women Who Roam with the Walls. We'll just call it Motorboats.
0: <laughs> motorboats with Chelsea. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs>
1: this, is, this whole podcast is going to be like a series of our inside jokes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we got to explain our inside jokes.
1: Uh, well, the explanation of that is I love motorboats and want them all the time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's basically
0: it. Cool. So (laughs) talking about women who run with wolves and what you're creating, is that what you're most excited about? Are there, is there anything else you want to tell us about?
1: I'm so excited about a lot of things. Um, I
0: know for, for the listeners, Chelsea is somebody who comes home at 10 o'clock at a hundred miles per hour (laughs) Goes to sleep at 1, wakes up at 8, at 100 miles per hour, and it doesn't stop.
1: (laughs) Um, Yeah, until like Sunday when I like sleep until 11.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You hibernate for one day a week. Yeah.
1: Gosh, well, I mean, so this week is really exciting because... On Sunday, I have my first Playback Theater West show. So I just joined this team. They're called Playback Theater West and they have been playing for 30 years in Denver and they do a really... In Boulder. And in Boulder, yes. Mm -hmm. They do a really special form of improv theater. So I do improv theater and you might think of that as whose line is is it anyway? Because that's what most people have seen. But there's actually a lot of different ways and forms in performing improv. Playback theater actually isn't exclusively comedic. Funny things come up, but it's actually about the full spectrum of the human experience. So we take real life stories from people in the audience and we play back their story. So we'll actually bring someone up on stage They'll tell us a true story of something that happened to them in their lives. Sometimes it's hilarious. Sometimes it's tragic. It's often very moving. And then we play out their story. Often it seems to be very therapeutic for the person who is sharing their story.
0: That's been my experience.
1: Yeah. And like very relatable for the people in the audience as well. Mm -hmm. And so the art in playing back is really in tuning in with what's at the heart of the story and tuning in with the moments where people change the moment in a story where you become a different person or you change is really important and just really being present when someone's sharing that with you so you can play it back in a way that has a lot of integrity so i'm super excited for my first show it's going to be on sunday
0: Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I guess what I'm really curious about with that, you talk about working on soul stories, you talk about women who run with wolves, you talk about, uh, you know, playback theater West and being at the science and nature museum and these like really meaningful, you're creating really meaningful experiences for people to engage in.
1: That's the idea. Yes. I I think it often works out that way. Yes.
0: Yeah, Totally. Where does that come from?
1: That's a great question. Um,
0: Take us back.
1: Can we do the Wayne's World? Doodly-doo, doodly-doo, doodly-doo. I <laughs> so I was, um, I was actually homeschooled, which I think explains a lot because I'm kind of a weird person. <laughs> so at the heart of my learning as a child was a sense of awe and wonder and. Like isn't learning an amazing privilege that we all have. And so the way that I was taught, it wasn't so... I don't know. I remember being struck when I first went to public school because kids were like, oh, why do we have to do this? And I never thought of learning in that way. And so I think I just got really lucky that I had a really great educational experience and I always loved learning. And also for me the best way to learn is to come to my own conclusions through experience. And I think that's where things really solidify for me. And so whether I'm learning science, or I'm learning about a new culture, or I'm learning about myself and reflecting on my life, it really starts to matter when I am active in the process of discovery. Yeah. And so I think that's what I try to recreate for other people. Is to create a space where they have the opportunity to go through that process of discovery, and that's I think when they really get to take that like nugget of wisdom with them as something that they earned, and they can have responsibility for,
0: rather than being like a passive receptacle.
1: Right. So yeah, I think that there's always been that love of learning for me, and you know, I worked, I've worked in a lot of different countries. Uh, I worked for Up with People for many years. I worked for U.S. Brazil Connect, various nonprofits, where I got to do educational work abroad. So I've worked in 28 different countries now, and through that, I just I've never grown tired of creating meaningful experiences for people. Mm. I've never I feel like it's something that I love so much that I'll never want to stop. And especially with the amount of diversity of different things that are out there to learn about and the diversity of different kinds of learners that I've come across in my travels. I just feel like the opportunity is just like this endless road, this endless journey of doing this kinds of work. And I hope I can do it for the rest of my life.
0: Well, that's really powerful. Do you, do you have a moment when you were a kid or early on that you can remember one of those experiences put on you?
1: I remember when I was a kid and I got to go on a camping trip because Comet Hale-Bopp was going to be passing through. I think this was in like
0: 1994. Comet Hale-Bopp?
1: Yeah, you never heard about Comet Hale-Bop? It's like a really big deal in astronomy. <laughs>
0: no. It's really called Hale-Bop?
1: Yeah, Hale and Bop, they were two different scientists that discovered this comet.
0: Oh, I love that. Yeah,
1: Comet Hale-Bop. <laughs> Hail Bop.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, H-A-I-L-B-O-P, I believe. Hale-Bop. It was a really big
0: deal. That in- sounds like an Adventure Time character that you like them hailing Bop. Anyways,
1: I'm I'm sure those two like old stuffy scientists are looking down right now being like, Hey, why are you making fun of my name? I'm I'm serious about my science. (laughs) But yeah, they discovered this like really epic. They predicted that it would be coming. And so I had a teacher that was really in love with astronomy. And in fifth grade, we got to go to this top of this mountain, Palomar Mountain in San Diego, and look through a real telescope and see... Comet Hale Bop. The tail was so like, it was just so powerful. And the idea that it was something so, so far away and so out of my reach and epic, I think it really expanded my worldview, my sense of my place in the universe. That feeling of discovery of something like really beautiful and really Big, like beyond me. Yeah. It was like a very meaningful educational experience.
0: And so you want to put people in that position.
1: Yeah. I want to create that sense of wonder
0: have and you, awe. Have you had, is there something you can point back in your like history where you were like, I created this and like, that was crazy. I can't believe I was able to do that at the same level that you experienced it?
1: Yes. Can I tell a couple different stories and we'll pick Hell one? Hell yeah. Okay, cool. That's what we're here for. Okay, so there was this one workshop that I was really proud of that I put together um, in Up With People. And this was actually something we tried out in the Czech Republic. And then later I got to bring it to the United Nations Conference on Sustainable Development, which was happening in Brazil. for this. It was this big event. We had probably like 36 different countries represented from the group of students that we had participating in this program. Uh, it was about 150 people all around college age, some a little older, some a little younger. And we got together and the the concept was Pangea was the title of it. And so it was, let's imagine if every single country represented was going to all have to come together under one government. All of our different countries and all of our different perspectives would all have to come together and create some kind of a peaceful connection where we all came to some kind of consensus around how we were going to organize ourselves. So we had all of these different hot topics. People would have to debate over, like, for example, the death penalty or abortion, things like this. And we would get them together in small groups and it would just be so fascinating to hear like a Chinese perspective versus a South African perspective versus like a Colombian perspective, all in the same room sharing their perspective. And a lot of it came down to the way that they were raised family values and that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, that makes sense.
1: And so different people eventually ended up running for government on different platforms Um, And they would have to kind of learn how to kind of reach across borders and say, like, if I want to get the Mexican vote, or if I want to get the Canadian vote, you know, I have to think about like, what is a value to other people? And why is that valuable? And so it was interesting, because it sounds very political, but a lot of it came down to like developing compassion for other people's perspectives. It was really cool yeah wow we had some people play the role of the media too and sometimes they would like twist things to sensationalize them and stuff like that and like it was kind of like fake newsy a little bit sometimes and Mm. it was super fun so some of those kids were local kids from the Czech Republic and a bunch of them were just students that I was traveling with yeah
0: so can you remember moments from that experience where you're like we did what we set out to accomplish
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, you put weeks into planning things like this. And there were a lot of transitions. There was a lot to orchestrate. Plus, English was not most of their first language. Mm -hmm. So I felt like I had... It was my first time in the Czech Republic also. So I wasn't super familiar with the culture. I'd only been there for six weeks by the time we did the event. So there was like a lot of uncertainty for me. And everyone showed up. We got everything all set up. And then there was a moment where I kind of had given all of the instructions, and then we just said, "All right, go." And everything just started running and working, and it was like the whole event was like a well-oiled machine.
0: Uh, I don't know how many people can appreciate that feeling. Yeah, but when event and an event can go without like pulling the strings, right. It is It is one of the best feelings.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I was nervous because it was kind of like complex. But everyone seemed to understand their roles and everyone just was super bought in. It was so nice. It was fun.
0: What do you think goes into creating something at that high of a level? An experience that people can effortlessly engage in at a high level that challenges their perspective and helps them grow? How do you do that as a creator?
1: Well, first of all, I think that one thing that a lot of people miss is that it's important to not force people to a conclusion. You know, leading questions and things like that can be a real... I want to say a real downer. But like, you don't want to force people... They can
0: restrict. They can be very restrictive. Yeah. Yeah
1: it's very different. Like, for example, if I'm teaching like real content, like astronomy or something like that, there is a right answer. But in creating an experience like that, which is really my bread and butter, I think that it's really important to know when you're creating the event that you are not going to control what everyone else says and to let go of the reins a little bit. And trust that, like, the audience is going to bring so much of the meat of the experience. They're going to bring the perspective. And that's the thing that really matters, you know? Yeah. So, in creating events like that, you know, my job is really to create a framework. And if I did my job well, the most meaningful experiences for them are things that happen between them and other people that are there and the structure almost goes by unnoticed because it's so smooth. Yeah. They're not caught up in thinking about the schedule and the timing and the structure. There's a fluidity to it.
0: Your job is almost to not exist.
1: Yeah.
0: It's to not be needed. Mm -hmm. Do you think that applies to other art forms?
1: Well, it definitely applies to teaching Like, for example, one thing that I teach is heart dissections. And I was doing a heart dissection last week. And I could see that the kids felt like they were coming to their own conclusions. And I wasn't having to feed them a lot of stuff. And those are the moments that they're going to remember. Yeah. They're not going to remember some lady being like, well, the pericardial sac is blah, 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 you know. But they're going to remember discovering the pericardial sac, looking at it and being like, I think I know what this is used for.
0: Yeah. You know? Yeah. That moment where they're empowered. Yeah. Do you see teaching as an art form?
1: Absolutely. I mean, at the museum, we consider education and entertainment to be very intertwined. And one thing I love about working at museums is that it's optional for most people to be there. And they come because they love to learn or that they're curious because they want to explore.
0: Yeah. You don't have to take anybody on a ride.
1: Yeah. It's not forced. And I think that that's actually like a really important thing that like we as society need to get back to is the joy of learning, the intrinsic desire that all humans have to learn. And right now I think that the general society perspective on learning is that it's something that you have to do when you're a kid. And then once you're an adult, you don't have to worry about it anymore. Like it's some kind of a nuisance, like a chore.
0: One of the previous guests, uh, Mike Brancatelli from Mike Adelic, when I was on his podcast, he talks about society setting up these structures to uh, control us in a way to m- make us. Uh, I don't. I don't know. Uh, I guess I don't know exactly what I'm trying to say. But sometimes I. I think the education system is set up like a factory system for that purpose.
1: Yeah, I mean, I see where you're coming from. I also think that like we have to be so compassionate for everyone involved because like you don't get in the education game for the money, right? Like, yeah, everybody wants to help right and everybody's trying and it's such a huge system Mm -hmm. that you have to make huge generalizations about people's learning process sometimes and it's just like man it's tough
0: when you're a public school system you're set yeah you're set up to literally accommodate every single person in the country
1: right I have so much humble appreciation for people who work in that field. And, you know, I get to do the fun stuff. You know, I get to do like the exciting field trip experience or like the campings where kids sleep over at night. Mm-hmm. I get to take people on trips to foreign countries. And, you know, so I'm, I'm really spoiled at that. And like, I really appreciate the people who are in the classroom every day.
0: Totally. Yeah. And uh, the comment I was making was not against people choosing to do education. I often find that teachers are oppressed by the education system.
1: Yeah. But like, even I think the creators of the education system are also trying, you know, and I can't imagine what that must be like, but I do also agree that what you're saying is that basically it can feel oppressive to be in something like that. Totally. So I guess maybe it's not the society has negative intent, but the unfortunate outcome of our education system is that it can feel really forced.
0: Yeah. How do you think we get, get out of that? How do you think we get out of the have to into the want to?
1: You know, I think resources for teachers so that teachers come to work feeling happy and joyous and excited about their jobs. Mm-hmm. You know, if you were going to teach all day and then going to bartend at night, there's no way you're going to be able to show up in your classroom with joy and excitement, you know?
0: Yeah, that's true.
1: Yeah. And then also just adults modeling the joy of learning, you know? Yeah. That's something I would like to see a lot more of.
0: Yeah, I wonder, because it, it would be interesting if, if teachers were fully resourced. Um, and I wouldn't, I would, I think it's easy to point to the two job teacher um, in my experience in the education system, it's mm-hmm. often what the expectations of the teacher right now are so intense. Yeah. You have to be like both the mom and the teacher and yeah. the behavior manager and the social worker and the counselor, um, you know, mm-hmm. and so like emotionally, I think they're really under resourced.
1: Yeah. As like free well. therapy for teachers, <laughs> right?
0: God <laughs> bless
1: them, Jesus.
0: I know my sister's <laughs> one, and it's crazy the stories she tells me. And yeah, I, I mean, I don't know how if if teachers came in, resourced and curious and excited.
1: Yeah, like with basic financial stability too, so yeah. they're not like financially stressed. Yeah. Gosh.
0: And better hours. I know the summer's off is like a thing, but they work a fuck ton at home. Yeah. Which is crazy, you know?
1: Yeah. Well, and like, I don't and, know. And I they just have to worry. deal
0: with kids who don't want to be there. I think that's one of the hardest things as a youth worker myself. Yeah. Is working with kids who don't care at all. Yeah. Because then you're just like pulling, you're like tugging all day, you know?
1: Yeah. And then that's their relationship with learning. Right. And, you know, I think it also, if you take a step back, grownups in general, I often feel, feel for them, you know? And I know, like, life is work, but I also think that in the United States, we take that a little too far.
0: Yeah, we do. You know? Yeah.
1: And I encounter a lot of adults that are really timid and afraid to express themselves in ways that I think, like... Maybe they could have a more creative outlet. It would be better for their mental health. Yeah. For example, this joke that I often make when I'm on the surface of Mars doing this presentation at the museum, I often will say, anyone can ask any question they want. Now, grownups, I know grownups are sometimes really shy, but you can ask questions, too. And it's like a joke, but I'm kind of serious because grown-ups are so shy and so afraid to be wrong.
0: Yeah, because yeah. they, they lose that status as a adult if they're like seen as wrong or something. Yeah.
1: And the idea of going to the museum with your child and then having something scientific come up and then not knowing the answer in front of your own child can mm. be really an intimidating thing for adults. So it's like another thing that we kind of try to be mindful of yeah. that like parents are always trying to make a good impression in front of their kids. Cause they feel like they're supposed to know everything.
0: It's really interesting that you have you to hear you have such like a nurturing, nurturing disposition towards adults, you know?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's a lonely, hard world out there. And I think a <laughs> yeah. lot of people here are overworked. Like every time I leave the country, I feel this like my whole nervous system just goes like ah mm. and then I come back here and everyone is like on a high speed train and in such a hurry <laughs> and you ask your friends like hey how you been and they're like oh busy i've been busy that's how i've been and
0: you're like ah <laughs> you're like oh sorry for asking yeah.
1: <laughs> and like it's obviously myself included like <laughs> we just i don't know americans have like an obsession with accomplishment
0: yeah I was listening to like a comedian talk about Americans and they're like like Americans just have such a a, like a little man syndrome you know
1: yeah like Napoleon syndrome yeah (laughs) Yeah. that's so true
0: (laughs) (laughs) we all have this like desire to be successful and prove that we're successful and show that we're successful yeah yeah compete with each other
1: yeah, I know. it's, And that's why Like, I think we all have to have a little bit of a, a nurturing attitude towards each other, you know?
0: Yeah. I wish I had more sometimes.
1: <laughs> I mean, I think that you're great. Like, <laughs> look at all the work that you do in Soul Stories for everybody. Yeah. Sometimes know, have, Ohio comes out, a, <laughs> especially I, if you're driving.
0: <laughs> I do a lot of nurturing work, but I feel like sometimes <laughs> when I'm just sitting on the couch with you. I'm just like, damn, fucking...
1: <laughs> Mother, fucking motherfucking
0: yeah, yeah. <laughs> Think they can tie that in fucking
1: basketball player <laughs> blah, blah, blah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh
1: well everybody needs an outlet
0: yeah you're mine <laughs> you're my outlet
1: <laughs> what is that like I feel like I have this thing where people just come to me and confess their dark secrets and like
0: Yeah. You you tell me that a lot. You're like, yeah, this person told me this thing. I was like, that person told you that
1: thing? I know. It's weird.
0: Like you're the only person I know who's had men confess to them about sexual assault. Yeah. Which is.
1: Well, that's interesting.
0: I've heard of that when like we're hosting an event called Unpacked uh, creative dialogue and consent. And a lit- I'm really
1: excited for that event. We can talk about be, that too. Yeah, Chelsea's <laughs> gonna be
0: a storyteller there. And it, there's like a, there will be some guys involved, and we've had some things come up a little bit, but like you've told me about multiple people that have just like said that thing to you, which that just proves how safe of a space you create. Cause that is the ultimate thing to be judged on. Like, that's the quickest thing, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I don't know, dude. (laughs) Who does? Well, and like, you're like my person that I can like go to and be like, you know, I can tell you all the
0: secrets. Like divert the energy. Yeah. You don't have to. If anybody's listening, she doesn't tell me the names though. That's true. Yeah. She still keeps it confidential.
1: I mean, you know, and you know, like, it's such an honor for, to hear someone's story.
0: Yeah, it really is. It's one of the best feelings.
1: Yeah. So, if we can create an environment in our society where people feel like they can put their guard down a little bit, Mm. how beautiful could that be? Yeah. I can just imagine, like, how much kinder people could be to each other. Yeah. You know, and like just with a little bit of vulnerability and softness and nurturing for each other. Right. You know, it's kind of related to this whole like consent thing Mm. that I've been reflecting on because I've been writing for the event. Yeah. Whereas, you know, I think people think about consent and they think about how like, Oh, well, you, if you have to like ask permission, then it kills the mood or, you know, if you like,
0: that's what I was taught growing up. Oh, just make a move. Don't say anything. Just make a move. You know, that's dumb. That's like the popular thing to tell little boys. Yeah. At least it was in the nineties and two thousands. I think we're changing.
1: I agree. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, it was the same for me, but the opposite, it was was pretty much just don't say anything. (laughs) (laughs) If you like it do not let on that you like it. If you don't like it, don't let on that you don't like it.
0: Right. It's just like,
1: let whatever. Just be just, an
0: object. <laughs> yeah, just
1: be a path. Yeah, be an object in the story. Yeah, I think that that is a perfect example of a lack of vulnerability and a people like unwilling to communicate is this culture where we don't have a lot of consent. Yeah. But look what happens when you do have like open communication and willingness to be vulnerable and like talk through things. Then it totally opens up the doors of possibilities.
0: Oh, man. When I've had sex during moments of open communication of like...
1: Let's talk about Danny's sex life. All right. <laughs> you
0: know, what, do you like this? Do you like that? What do you like? This is what I like. Okay. Like that's a, it's like the constant. And when it becomes so normalized that you can just keep saying that and there's no fear of rejection because if you do get rejected it's fine because you're just like you
1: try something else you
0: try something else and it just leads to some of the most beautiful moments yeah and i don't think you can get to those feelings without that communication
1: yeah i totally Uh, agree
0: unless you get lucky as hell
1: yeah, that would be, like, wild luck.
0: Right, where you just match perfectly. And, right. But I don't think that's even possible. And it probably fades, too.
1: Yeah, because, like... that, and Yeah, and that's the beauty of consent, too, is you can, like, change what you like over time, you know? Yeah. I have this consent story that I tell about the museum a lot, which is we have this one scene where... In one of our stories, there's a baby dinosaur, and it's a puppet that I control. And at the end of the story, the baby dinosaur wants to give everyone dinosaur kisses. And it's really cute because all the kids, they're like four and under. And you go like, kiss, 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 kiss. Dinosaur kisses for everybody. And the way we used to do it was the dinosaur would kind of attack all of the kids with dinosaur kisses and the kids would giggle and run away and try to hide. And the dinosaur would try to chase them down and kiss them. (laughs) And the kids loved it, but it's also kind of like, what are we teaching these kids? Like we're teaching them to like, if you run away, they'll ignore that you're running away and chase after you. If you say no, you will not be considered, you know? Yeah. And so I just started asking the kids like, do you want a dinosaur kiss? And if they say no, then I say, okay, I respect that in my little dinosaur voice. And all the parents laugh because it's just like this recognition of consent culture. And it's allowing the kids to have the opportunity to practice saying yes, when they want something, mm. you know, and not have that like weird sense of mixed messages that our culture had for so long.
0: Yeah. Cause I often think it's, it's popularized to be able to read people it's like you Mm -hmm. just have to know what they want or like based on their body language are they feeling this or are they feeling that you know well why aren't you paying attention versus like popularizing just saying this is how I feel this is what I want yeah you know
1: that's a good point yeah
0: and that's cool that they're starting at such a young age
1: yeah I know that certainly wasn't how it was for me growing up
0: hell no I had Operation Keepsake. <laughs> <laughs> Operation keepsake was abstinence.
1: And you were totally sold on it for a while.
0: Oh yeah. I signed I signed the sheet that said I'm gonna be a virgin till marriage.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh man, we had such different upbringings. <laughs> I know. How old were you when you signed that?
0: Eighth grade.
1: Eighth grade? When I was in eighth grade, I was smoking. Pop by the train tracks, <laughs> yeah.
0: Oh, very man. different. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: Oh, if only, if only I was smoking pot by the train tracks. <laughs> yeah, I was getting demerits because my hair might have been like a little bit past my eyebrows. Ooh, yeah. Way to be rebellious. But Catholic school kids, you know, it's totally a thing where after you get out of Catholic school, it all changes and. It's oh, rebe- like the
1: Amish thing.
0: They rebel way harder. That's crazy. Yeah, there's so ma- so many Catholic school friends I knew who went like zero to s- zero to a hundred when they went to public <laughs> school the next year.
1: Zero to candy flippers. <laughs> to what? <sighs> like ravers doing ecstasy on the weekends.
0: Oh yeah, totally crazy kids. Crazy Catholic school kids. <laughs> So yeah, tell,
1: me, on the other hand, I was raised by hippies smoking pot <laughs> from a young age. And by the time I was 17, I was like, I'm done. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. You're already burnt out. You're yeah. like old woman syndrome at 17. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us about the train tracks. The train tracks? Yeah, that's interesting.
1: I mean, the train tracks was just a spot we would go when we were kids. There is this guy named Neil.
0: Did you say San Diego?
1: Oceanside, California. Yeah. San yeah. Diego County. Nice. And we used to go out there and get this guy, Neil, to buy us beer because he was like 23 and we were like kids, but he would buy us beer and we would all get drunk with him. And oh my God, I know we were such a mess. Could we were you so imagine being
0: 23 and drinking with the eighth grade?
1: I, <laughs> I mean, yeah, God bless him. He was a mess, but he used to always tell us that he'd be like, hey, you dropped your pocket. That was like his favorite joke.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Neil. Come on, buddy.
1: Yeah, it was, it was the classiest of times. This is when I learned about snot rockets and listening to Blatz.
0: Well, you know, I'm just concerned about Neil's jokes. I think he needs to work on that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Maybe he's gotten better material by now. I don't know.
0: Yeah, we should contact him.
1: We should bring him on the podcast.
0: <laughs> bring Neil on the podcast. Yeah. Um, Tell us a little bit more about your uh, upbringing. What happened after the train tracks?
1: Oh, well, so after the train tracks, I mean, like the train tracks where we used to hang out was like, yeah, eighth grade, ninth grade. Um, And then in 10th grade, I ran away from home and I lived on the streets for a while. I spent some time in a squat house in L.A. with this guy named Wolf. Wolf. Who taught us martial arts, me and my friends that were staying with him.
0: <laughs> Every time I hear this story, there's a new detail. I don't think I've ever heard about Wolf and the martial arts.
1: Yeah, part. he was cool. Um, he was totally sober and like super straight edge, hardcore, Drink a lot of coffee, though. <laughs> I like, really loved martial arts and discipline. And stuff like that. And he took us in and let us stay at a squat house. And we'd like stay up late talking by candlelight. You can't be too loud when you're in a squat. Yeah. But we would read comic books or whatever we had to read and talk and play cards and stuff like that.
0: Oh, that's cool.
1: Yeah, it was a good time. And then I also spent some time up in San Francisco. Yeah, there was squat houses in Berkeley that I stayed out for a while and... One of my favorite places that I stayed was on the water of the bay and it was an industrial landfill. So there were huge mountains of concrete and like rebar lying around. But since the 60s or the 70s, hippies had been going there and they had built this co-op. So I don't think it was an active landfill. I think all that stuff had just kind of been dropped there. And hippies had come and built teepees and like giant totem poles that were painted in all these psychedelic colors. Total cultural appropriation. Right. Uh, but they also built like a two story castle that they painted in cartoon purple. So it was like this crazy like, hippie land. Wow. And there was a guy there named Rabbit. Dang! These guys take it on animal names.
0: Yeah, I like it. Wolf yeah, and rabbit.
1: Yeah, rabbit. Like showed us around, and we stayed in a yurt there. And I took a boy's virginity in that yurt. Mm. I think I might be the only woman he's ever slept with because he was gay.
0: <laughs> oh wow, that's a stat to put yeah. in your resume.
1: There you go.
0: Um, I I feel like you have had so many interesting experiences from traveling the world to running away from home, living in the streets of LA and San Francisco and creating meaningful experiences. Where do you think that comes from? Like inside of you?
1: Like where does my sense of adventure come from?
0: Yeah. Like what's the search? What's the thing that you're always like looking for?
1: I think that part of it is I have this weird obliviousness that sometimes gets me into trouble, but also sometimes brings me good luck. Okay, it's an obliviousness to my own inability to do things.
0: <laughs> wow!
1: So sometimes I have so like,
0: many people would kill for. This.
1: <laughs> yeah, like sometimes I have way too much blind faith in myself. Yeah. Like, I'm going next week to Honduras. I've decided that I'm going to fly to Guatemala City. Yeah. Because I've never been to Guatemala. And I want to check it out. And then I'm going to take a bus across the border into Honduras, which is an arguably very dangerous country. And then I'm going to be picked up and I'm going to be taken out into this tribal land area where there's no police officers available and there's no access to like medical care, like if you break your leg or something like that. And I'm going to... like go out there and help these women learn how to sew menstrual pads so that their girls can go to school. Because a lot of the girls don't go to school once they get their periods because they don't have menstrual pads. So, they can't walk like the two hours to get to school. And so, maybe that's a little stupid. Maybe it's a little too risky, you know, but I'm still alive so far. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and the same obliviousness is also like... I am oblivious sometimes how weird I am. Like Mm. sometimes I'll say something that feels really normal and someone will be like, wow, Chelsea, (laughs) like you're an odd one. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, is that not normal thing to say? (laughs) And so I think that's also like helped me a lot in my life because I probably wouldn't, I probably would have stifled a lot of things in myself if I had realized that other people thought that I was weird for doing them. But because I didn't, because probably because I was homeschooled and I wasn't like indoctrinated into this being normalness from a very young age.
0: But your sisters were.
1: Well, your sisters were also
0: homeschooled. And I feel like they don't have that same thing that you're talking about.
1: I think that's true they take different paths my older sister's thing with being homeschooled i think was that she was also the oldest of four and born to a teenage mother so her whole thing was like i need to be an adult yeah and to like
0: take care go to
1: college like my parents did do yeah and like yeah that's my older sister too
0: yeah so when you're when you're you know you're using the strength you have which is obliviousness and weirdness as a way of expressing your inner creativity.
1: Yeah, it gives me freedom.
0: I think we work really well together because I have an opposite thing. I'm a much more self-conscious person. Um, why why go to Honduras? Why do these things?
1: There's so many different ways to answer that question. First of all, let me say that I want to go to Honduras because I think that our country, the United States, has done some awful things to the country of Honduras. Like what? The whole history of everything that happened in the 1980s, the whole like Banana Republic issue, all of the things that Coca-Cola has done down there.
0: Yeah, you've told me a lot about Coca-Cola down there.
1: Yeah. Fuck Coca-Cola. Let me go on record right now. Say fuck Coca-Cola. <laughs>
0: Soul Stories does not support Coca-Cola. Fuck those guys. That's on the record. Yes.
1: Um, <laughs> but I mean, the United States...
0: <laughs> I, mean, I like casually take a drink from my Coke. <laughs> I think I had Diet Coke at no, work today. No. Anyways, go ahead. Oh, damn. No, it was Diet Pepsi. Oh, have- <laughs>
1: Still bad probably, but whatever. It's all good. I mean, the United States built military bases all over Honduras and Honduras has been their pawn ever since. Even in the last election, there were riots in the streets because the United States meddled in the election of Honduras. And that was in the end of 2017 and people just still don't know about it here. That just happened.
0: And we never will.
1: Yeah. We basically put in a president there that was falsely elected. And so like given all of that, I feel with all of this privilege that I have and All of the just amazing good fortune I have as a U.S. citizen, I have a certain responsibility to like give a shit about other people that are being stomped on for my benefit. Yeah. You know, this is happening all over the world all the time and Americans are so blind to it.
0: Yeah, I mean, why would we want to
1: know? We don't want to know. And often if I tell someone, they'll be like, don't tell me about H&M. Like, I like shopping there and it's cheap.
0: <laughs> Are you talking about me?
1: <laughs> no, you're one of many people I'm trying to tell them about H&M and they don't oh, want to hear I'm it. I'm
0: such a moral... I'm so morally... Uh, what's the word?
1: Uh, I'm not trying to make you feel like an asshole or anything. Oh, I don't
0: feel like an asshole. I recognize that. I, I mean, lo- we're
1: all a bunch of hypocrites in one way or another. I just another. had this
0: conversation with a friend where I was like... Me and my friend were like, man, we love H&M. Like what are we going to do? <laughs> Just knowing, you know. Yeah. It's like such a like basic thing. Just, Just don't, don't shop do at it. H&M. Just don't do it.
1: <laughs> yeah, as a big apology to Mother Earth for everything that we're doing to her, and as a big sign of respect to the people of Honduras that I do see them as people that we are imposing upon, I feel an obligation to do something if I can.
0: Do you feel guilty about things that you haven't done?
1: Yeah. I guess I don't sit around and think about how guilty I feel. I mean, honestly, like, I'm connect- also pretty selfish in a lot of ways.
0: Yeah, yeah, totally. And let
1: me also say, in like the whole Honduras thing, that someone recently asked me something about altruism. And my friend was asking me about how, well, If you do something that's a good thing, but you do it for your personal benefit, does that make it less of a good thing? And I actually had the good fortune of working for U.S.-Brazil Connect for many years, which was an amazing nonprofit that you also worked with. And we took groups of people down to Brazil.
0: Shout out to Mary Gershwin and Brie Erger.
1: And in U.S.-Brazil Connect and in our training there, my biggest takeaways was this idea of mutual benefit.
0: I was just, yeah, I was just about to say this. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And like this idea of, okay, so if I go down to Honduras and I'm like, I'm not getting anything out of this. I am just here to help these poor, poor people. Yeah. Fuck that. I have a lot to learn from the people down there and have a huge amount of benefit that I can gain from the experience of being in this country. Yeah. So it is for my personal benefit and I don't think anyone should apologize for that. No. I think that there's plenty of things you can do that are personal benefit and benefit to other people.
0: I think that altruism thing is like a I wonder and I wonder if this in there's probably a lot of roots to this but I wonder if it comes from this Christian ideal, this like Jesus on the cross ideal, like I died for your sins kind of thing. Yeah, Where this it, whole
1: savior mentality.
0: Yeah, like a well, like a self-sacrificial thing. Mhm. Like it's only helping if you're sacrificing yourself in some way or you know I don't know yeah but
1: I don't know where it comes from and I'm sure it's different for different people but
0: I agree with you because I work with kids who have been through trauma I do not approach them like their kids who have been through trauma I like say very blunt and weird things to them as if I was talking to a child you know like I'm goofy with them I'm direct with them I'm like condescending and like also uplifting. Like, I treat them like a human being, right? Yeah. Like, I'm not, I'm not just like I'm, going, like, I'm here, you know? There's so much less pressure on a kid when you treat them that way.
1: Oh my God. Yeah. I mean,
0: like, because the, like, I think the pressure emanates from adults that are trying to help people and really like be like, I'm here for you. Where it's like it's like an unwanted pressure.
1: I, I totally get what you're saying.
0: I, I might be too, be too vague. Can you ground me a little bit?
1: It reminds me of the classic example of a kid is running on the playground. They fall and it looks like they bounce off the concrete sometimes. But kids are very bouncy. And usually, if you don't react, they'll just get up and wipe themselves off and keep running. Yes. But... If you see the child fall and you go, oh my gosh, are you okay? And you panic.
0: Yeah. The child will also panic. Right. Right. I wonder if that person panicking is like being like, well, this is me being a caring person.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's totally coming from a good place, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and like, it's,
0: yeah, it's not fair to judge those people,
1: right? Absolutely. And like, as it's, much as
0: I want to, <laughs> it's totally
1: like reasonable that someone would be concerned about a hurt child, right? That's right. like so instinctual. But I also have had experiences myself where I've been a victim of trauma, and then people treat me like I'm made out of delicate glass. Right. And they're like, don't they feel so uncomfortable around me and they don't want to talk about it and they kind of just want to be really soft and just make sure I'm okay. And that's not really like that's also coming from a very loving place.
0: Right. But like a misunderstood place, I'd say, in some way. Yeah. Um like I was just coaching somebody today, one of the people I supervise. I was talking to them about not taking things personal. A good phrase that a mentor of mine taught me in youth work was the wins aren't yours and the losses aren't yours. Yeah. And like, that's really helped me depersonalize (laughs) things. And so I was telling that to him and he was like, yeah, you know, I had this moment where I was talking to this kid and he was flipping out and angry. I was like, why is he flipping out on me with our, like, like I I wanted to be like, don't you remember that conversation we just had? We just had this conversation. Like, you, and I was like, I know this kid, I'm his one-to-one. And I, I told him, I'm like, well, the first thing I want to tell you is you don't know that kid. Like you actually don't know much about him. And something I would say to flip it around would be, you're seeming very angry right now. And really, like, what's the need and the want of the child? Yeah. Whereas if you bring it back to our relationship, it's like, come on, buddy, we're friends. Like, why are you doing this to me? Then the kid is reacting to this anger he has that has nothing to do with you. And now he feels guilty for doing it to you. So he has like double negative emotion happening. That kid's responsibility is not to make you feel better. Yeah. That kid's responsibility is to figure out how to take care of himself.
1: Right. And that's the thing that we do all the time, I think. Yeah. This whole thing where if I have a negative interaction with another human being of any kind, I will assume that negative reaction was something about me.
0: Yeah. And it could just not be too. about me at all. Yeah. It's really easy to get there.
1: Yeah. It's really easy to make assumptions. Yeah. It's like this Thing I feel like I've been practicing for most of my adult life is trying not to make assumptions and I still have to be conscious of it every day and try not to make assumptions.
0: I've been called out a few times in the past like couple of months. Danny, you assuming that about me has just made me feel this way. And it's just like, Oh, I didn't think I was assuming anything. I thought I was just being me, you know? Wow. You must have some really good communicators in your life. <laughs> you assuming that about me made me feel this way. That was like a
1: perfect layout of like a good way to communicate feedback. (laughs) I'm sure it didn't
0: go like that. I'm sure. Oh, man.
1: Dude, the other day, I was working with a group of fifth fifth graders and there was a mom there who knew a lot of the content and we were learning about the human body and I was like, oh, are you a nurse? And as soon as I said that, I held my breath because I was like, when why did I assume that she's not a doctor? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Cause I'm an asshole that's super sexist and I make assumptions all the time. That's why.
0: Was she a nurse?
1: Yes. Thank oh. God. She was like, I'm a nurse. And I was like, oh good. She's like, Yeah, how'd you know?
0: <laughs> yeah, let's also remember nurses get hella paid. Nurses
1: Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah.
0: Nurses are a great, great career. You Sweet. can get it. You can get up to like six six figures as a nurse.
1: How do you know this? Are you I, considering? Changing I figures?
0: researched it for a while because social workers and nurses can do the same work, except nurses are way more educated in science. Uh huh. And so they get they are able to do medication. Uh huh. Yeah. They are much more needed in that way, and so like in working for hospitals. There's a lot of money in hospitals, but you can be. Private practice. You can work for the hospital, and you can even be a psych nurse who gives out prescriptions, and they can make hella money, dude. I know. I've always wanted to marry a nurse.
1: They're like tough as nails and soft as ghee at the same time.
0: Yeah, the good ones.
1: Yeah, so resilient.
0: So yeah, where? Uh, what thread have we? Uh, what have we woven so far? Where are we going next?
1: Um, I feel like I've told some stories about my life. i you know what we haven't talked about the future, though, like hopes and dreams.
0: you want to talk about hopes and dreams?
1: Yeah. I also want to do a rapid fire q and a because
0: I think they're cool. <laughs> all right. you want to do a rapid fire q yeah, do
1: you think you you got the questions in you?
0: Yeah, I can do it
1: cause if not, I could rapid fire question you.
0: no, all right go i get to choose my podcast all right fine (laughs) um all right what's your favorite band right now
1: um i was listening to kiltro yesterday local band super good
0: wow kiltro's great all right what's your favorite movie from the last five years
1: my favorite movie that i've seen in the last five years is i heart huckabees but i think it came out before that that's such a cheap cheap way of getting i heart
0: huckabees in there That's Chelsea's favorite movie. I love that movie. Um,
1: Also best in show.
0: How many siblings do you have?
1: I have three siblings.
0: Sisters, brothers.
1: Rose is the oldest sister. She's the hot shot woman who moved to DC and tried to change the world through policy. Louis is the next one up. He is my older brother and he lives in Northern California. And his whole deal was... I'm going to start a cab company and raise a family. And why should I hurry myself all the time? Like I'm going to chill out and live my life. And I think he's super happy, which is really cool. And then my little sister is Alicia. And she's a total yoga babe. Also brilliant entrepreneurial genius, who's also my personal hero.
0: Wow. Great statements. Um, What's your favorite food?
1: Uh, Macaroni and cheese. Uh, or anything with potatoes.
0: What's your favorite country you've traveled to?
1: Oh, man, that's a hard question. But I have top three favorite cities, which is Salvador, Bahia, Brazil. Because <sighs> I fell in love with that's someone my, there.
0: That's where I want to go next.
1: Mexico City.
0: That's, that's where we're going next.
1: I love Mexico City. It's the best. I also have an amazing host family there. And Copenhagen, Denmark, because obviously the Scandahuvians know what they're doing.
0: <laughs> mm. And, uh, okay, what was your dra- Dungeons and Dragons character oh. like? Describe oh my God. Describe this character to us.
1: Zephyrteen is a druid dwarf badass who has, over the course of the game, created an entire army of animals i have a lightning drake dragon that shoots lightning out of its nose instead of fire i have a panther i have a raven i have a swarm of locusts i have all these creatures that i can send to attack you at any time
0: Mm, not me though when's the last time you cried
1: i'm chaotic dude. oh probably recently last time yeah, you're
0: definitely a crier
1: i am a crier oh my god it was when we watched lobster the other day
0: you cried during that yes <laughs> what part did you cry at?
1: oh man but i don't know somewhere in the middle i was crying
0: man lobster was wild.
1: roma i sobbed during roma
0: oh roma i have been i've been listening to some analysis everybody's pissed about green book winning interesting because you know what it is huh. it's like this all right so i haven't seen it but this is what i've heard is that
1: we should watch it and give we it should, a fair
0: shot we should watch it but it's like a white racist guy who's super mean to this black guy who then he becomes like all like great and understanding and then they become friends and everyone's like Suck fucker. my dig. right like this <laughs> is like the easiest story for white hollywood to digest yeah with Roma and Black Klansmen on the list. I mean, Roma talking about social issues and race relations. Like, come on. Yeah. Uh, that's the movie.
1: Oh, man. It's I went a on a
0: rant movie. to Comga on, on the way over about this. Comga didn't even know what I was talking about. and I still ranted.
1: <laughs> it was such a beautiful movie. You have really strong feelings about the Oscars as well. Which <laughs> is really interesting fact about you.
0: <laughs> I really live for movies.
1: But you know what else I almost cried about today? What? I was weirdly emotionally triggered by this. So my parents had a crazy blow-up divorce like five years ago. Okay. And before that, though, they had like a long, beautiful marriage. It was beautiful in a lot of ways. They raised four kids together, you know, the whole shebang. And today... Five years later, after the divorce, my dad is going to be getting married to someone else who is wonderful. But today he texted the three of us girls and was like, I have the framed bouquet that your mother carried on our wedding day that was hanging over our bed for your entire lives. And I'm about to throw it away unless one of you wants it.
0: Wow. What did you guys say?
1: I was like... It really hurt my feelings that he didn't want it. I know that it was hard in the end, but isn't there like a huge part of their marriage that was like worth holding on to the memory of? Like that's a huge chunk of his life.
0: You should ask him about that.
1: I did. And he's like, I don't want it. He's like, I'm just trying to be practical. And then he gave me the definition of hoarding.
0: Your dad's such an emotional guy, though. I feel like he's probably not telling you everything.
1: I feel like he dodges emotional confrontation. He's a confrontation
0: dodger. Well, he definitely has that inspiration emotion. I've seen that. Yeah. Where he gets like really like like his eyes well up.
1: Yeah. Yeah. He's just like his grandfather who he's named after.
0: Oh, that's interesting.
1: Yeah. My great-grandpa Louis was like... Really sentimental. And when all of the grandkids and the great grandkids would be over at his house in the backyard, like I remember him crying just because of like his love of the miracle right. of his family.
0: That's how I picture your dad too.
1: Yeah. He is really like sentimental and loving in that way.
0: Yeah. Problems. What's your favorite color expo marker?
1: Uh, maroon or purple.
0: Interesting. Who's your favorite friend? <laughs> no, Dolly. <don't answer> <laughs> How many friends do you have? <laughs> <laughs>
1: like Facebook friends or like real friends? I don't know. What's Maybe this last? is all just like a computer simulation and everyone is just a
0: reflection of myself. What's the last video game you played?
1: <laughs> Actually, in at work we have an arcade game where you can play Galaxy Quest or whatever.
0: Galaga? No, no Galaxy Quest. Is
1: Galaxy game. Quest.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So that's the last one you played?
1: Yeah. Does that count?
0: Yeah, that counts. Yeah. What's the last sport you played?
1: Probably soccer.
0: Interesting. When was that?
1: Oh a summer camp at the museum. Competitively or just like just kicking a ball you. I mean, yeah. The last time I like wore a soccer jersey was a long time ago, but yeah, we play. We kick the ball around at the museum and summer camps with the kids.
0: What's your dream project?
1: I have a vision <laughs> of a performance piece where you move the audience throughout this venue. And it's very ritualistic. It involves fire and water. And they have to walk across like a big rope bridge and let go of their ego and old parts of themselves and go through this huge crazy transformation
0: you know tony robbins does something like that yeah they have to walk across it's, coals
1: yeah but it's a little less cheesy and a little <laughs> more theatrical
0: <laughs> a little more performance it's more
1: like tony robbins meets cirque du soleil how about oh. that
0: oh that sounds amazing wow so uh what's coming up what's in the future? What are you looking forward to in the next year?
1: Well, I'm on this new improv team <laughs> where we are and this
0: isn't playback theater This is a different team
1: we are we have a run where we're going to be recreating stories using the Greek gods and mythos, and at the same time at work, I am studying the constellations and learning a lot about star identification and the history of astronomy, especially from a feminist lens. And so a lot of my world right now is delving into mythology. I'm really excited about that. And I know that I'm going to travel somewhere else in 2019 after Honduras, but I don't know where.
0: Is it going to be Mexico City?
1: Well, so you've proposed the possibility of us taking Soul Stories on the road to Mexico City. Yeah. Uh, We've also played with the idea of going down to Argentina.
0: Yeah.
1: There's also a possibility of doing rustic pathways and getting a job where I go abroad like that.
0: Yeah. I don't don't know if they'll offer that position again. We got to do our research again. Yeah. Because it came out in January last year.
1: And then there's also Burning Man, which could happen.
0: Oh, I always want to go to Burning Man. Before we get, like, wrapped up, is there anything you want to, like, say or, like, put out into the world?
1: I used to think of myself as someone who had to do something big and important in order to fulfill my destiny. And I think as I'm getting older, I more think of myself as someone who just has to continue to walk this path. And to accept wherever it takes me. And I think that that, like, shedding of my ego has really helped me to appreciate other people too. Because, you know, in our history books, we have famous people that have stories that are very impressive. But that also happened because they didn't have things that got in the way in their life, you know? And they were at the right place at the right time and they had the right support a lot of female astronomers didn't get credit. There was a man that they were adjacent to, like, for example, perhaps their brother, or like Hubble of the Hubble Space Telescope had Henrietta Leavitt, who did a lot of the groundwork and actually suggested that he go and look at this thing that she wasn't allowed to go and look at. And then he made the discovery. Wow. I just feel like I'm less and less concerned with doing something that people will be like, wow, I'm so impressed by her. And I'm more concerned with like the work itself and just walking this road of my life path. Mm. And that's given me a real sense of peace.
0: So how does that connect to what you were saying about like these women not receiving credit?
1: I mean, I think that for these, for like, I think it makes the idea of fame more arbitrary. Oh. You know? Yeah. It's not like the person who is famous is the person who was necessarily best.
0: Yeah. I think that's true in a lot of cases.
1: Yeah. And so I feel like there's a lot of attention, especially with social media right now, around being the most popular or being the most famous or the most seen. Mm -hmm. Um. But I think I would actually rather just do good work and be proud of what I do. Yeah. And that's more important to me. Cool. Yeah.
0: I think that's an awesome way to end this. Cool. Thank you, uh, Chelsea, for being on the podcast.
1: Yeah. Nice chatting with you.
0: Bam. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Soul Stories podcast. Having these conversations is super important to me as a person and the backbone behind why we do everything at Soul Stories. I would be extremely grateful if you were to leave a review at iTunes and share this episode with someone you care about. It helps us build the movement. Until next time, this is Danny signing off.